something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Hello and welcome to the Bechtelcast. My name is Caitlin Durante. My name is Jamie Loftus. And we host a podcast about how the representation of women in movies is usually not very good. We've been hosting that We've podcast. We've been doing it. Hell yeah. So we use the uh, Bechtel test as a jumping off point for the discussion of how women are portrayed in a certain movie. Uh, Bechtel test for all you rubes, of course, being the media metric invented by cartoonist Alison Bechtel that requires that, uh, for our purposes, that two female identifying characters with names talk about something other than a man in conversation for just two lines of dialogue. Should we demonstrate this very yeah. concept? Oh, yeah, we haven't done this in a while. We haven't done yeah. that in a while. Okay. I don't know why. Um, hey, Jamie. Hey, Caitlin. What is your oh my God. favorite? <laughs> oh, my God. I forget how to not talk about men. Oh, <laughs> oh no. God. I was like, would you just... Okay, what? <laughs> hey, no, I'm going to keep going. Okay, keep what, going, keep going. what's your favorite... Meryl Street movie. How do you have to think about this? Jamie. I, oh, is this a transition? I thought it was a serious no. question. No, but My how are you Meryl not Street. remembering... Not only your favorite Meryl Streep movie, but your favorite Oh my movie. god! Oh my god, Doubt. Yes. Doubt is my favorite. Oh my god. I'm having a meltdown. <laughs> oh my god, Doubt is my favorite movie. I yeah. can't... I don't know. I'm very <laughs> sick. I was like, Julia and Julia? That can't be right. <laughs> Sorry, we Whoa. all have a lapse in our memories. Whoa, I just lost sight of who I am. Remember, I think oh, it was the Pulp God, Fiction episode I that I kept accidentally calling her Meryl Street. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that was a, a fun oh, slippy. What a day. Can't believe forgot doubt. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's embarrassing. It's okay. 
I forgive you. I gotta be vulnerable on those airwaves, baby. Mm -hmm. People need it. People need it. So anyway, Uh, that pat. You know, we're talking about Meryl Streep. Street. 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 And her movies. So that passes the <laughs> Bechdel to go test. Back to Mer- we're, we're taking another cruise down Merrill Street today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with another street fave. All you street heads out there. <laughs> all you people pounding Merrill Street, pounding the pavement of that sounds <laughs> pornographic. <laughs> of Merrill Street. Today we're talking about The Devil Wears Prada. That's right. 2006 joint. Uh-huh. To join us in our discussion is our guest today is a writer, editor, and co-host of Back Talk podcast on Bitch Media. Mm. It's Amy Lamb. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey, welcome. Hey. Thanks for being here. I am very, very, very excited to talk about this movie. Hooray. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what is your history, your relationship? Why did you pick this movie? So I had read the book, and I don't even remember how I got the book. I was living and teaching in China, mm-hmm. and um, it was like a week where there was no school, so I just took this like um, spontaneous trip with some other teachers, mm-hmm. and somehow I got the book, I, uh-huh. and I really don't remember how I got the book, so oh, okay. I was like... Sometimes that book just appears in your hands. <laughs> it's it's like a item. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if it was like at the guest house you were staying at. I, I, I just have a terrible memory, but... So I was reading the book because I was also trying to avoid the people I was traveling with. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was one of those things where so I read it and the book isn't that good. Okay. But I studied um, journalism as my undergrad. So mm-hmm. I was like one of those people where I'm like, well, maybe one day I'm going to be in this media world. So I need to read it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I had known that like the woman who wrote it, I'm forgetting her name. Uh, Lauren, Lauren Weisberg. Yes. She had worked at Vogue and this was supposed to be based off of and I went to her, so I was just yeah. like, ooh, let me read about this, like, boss lady or whatever. And also, because I, my very first job out of school, I don't know how much to say, but I had worked for somebody who had these vibes, and it was at a media-ish place. Mm-hmm. Like, she had these types of vibes where, like, one example is um, everybody came to the office at, like, 10 or 9.30, but I had to come in half an hour early, just me, mm. so that I could turn on her computer. <laughs> like, this is back in the day where, like, people... Oh. <laughs> Like, like, so that I had to go into her office and like push the power button. And when I did it, she would holler at me because I wasn't in her office. I was like in the hall. Yeah. She would be like, hey, man. I knew I was like, fuck, I forgot to turn on her computer. (sighs) So like, so I had that experience. And then so I wanted to read this book about another like weird boss woman. Yeah. And I read the book and I was just like, this is like a really fun read, even though the writing wasn't like amazing. Yeah. And I think I read it in anticipation because I knew the movie was out because I wanted to watch the movie. And this is one of those cases where the movie is way better than the book. Oh, is it? Mm -hmm. Yes. I haven't read the book, so yeah, I'm not The movie is just like so much more fun and like lush and interesting to look at, especially if you kind of enjoy fashion in some way. Mm -hmm. So I I was living in China, so I had bought the bootleg version of it like for like a (laughs) dollar or something. Yeah. And I would watch it on read repeat like because um, i lived in this like uh very cold apartment where like there's nothing to do over the winter time it was like always 40 degrees <laughs> and i would just like have a space heater like frying my legs while i, I would watch the <laughs> tea, watch it over and over again on my laptop so i would i watched it on repeat forever and then i didn't watch it for a long long time because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. this was like in like 2007 2008 ish and recently i just started watching it again and again and anticipation of doing this podcast but also just it's just so fun but i think watching it now with like a fresh pair of eyes you're just like wow this movie would be so different if it was made now and in, like yeah. this True. media landscape or whatever yes yeah it's why i mean it's only 12 years old but watching it back you're just like whoa there is a lot of stuff that 
this movie watching it this time around was like a very interesting mixed bag because and I am very attached to it mm-hmm. I saw this movie when it came out in 2006 I would have been in like middle school and it was the perfect movie <laughs> to see in middle school I'd also read the book uh, where I would like go to when I was in middle school, I'd like go to the public library and then go to like the ladies fiction section. <laughs> so I was like hitting Meg Cabot books, but the ones for adults, not the Princess Diaries. Mm-hmm. And then I read all the Sophie Kinsella uh, shopaholic books, which were t- trash garbage, as <laughs> were the movies. Uh, but this was I read this book too, and I totally agree with you, Amy. I think that the movie is so much. The book is like so much fun to read, and you can like zip through it because it's so. That if and I read it in literally middle school, but even then I was like, oh, this is very like catty and pointed, and it's just <laughs> sort of this like veiled hate letter to Anna Wintour, <laughs> <laughs> which is fun to read, but uh, the movie uh, definitely, I think removes itself from the direct like nature of the book and yeah yeah, so I saw it with my mom and some friends in middle school we all loved it revisit it's like a comfort food movie I could have it on in the back I think I've had it on in the background of doing other stuff multiple times Mm -hmm. since then yeah it's a fun It is. I find that a lot of movies that I either have to revisit or watch for the first time for this podcast feel like a chore to get through. And I didn't really feel like that for this movie. I was like actually enjoying myself when I was watching it. And that's not to say it's not without its problems. But I was like, okay, this is fun. I saw it for the first time. I think it was around the time that I was working in a similar professional scenario where I had wow, a boss. So many veiled <laughs> descriptions here. Yeah, but uh, I was living in New York City. You ever heard of it? Woo-hoo. I was working as an assistant at a literary management company. I didn't know you did that. Uh huh. Yeah, that was like my first real job out of college, mm-hmm. uh, which of course I did go to, and then I did go to uh, grad school for a master's degree in screenwriting from Boston University. Um, so I was working at this job, and then I was an assistant to this guy who was very emotionally abusive to his employees. He was racist. He was homophobic. He was sexist. He constantly undermined my work and my value. He he would make mistakes and then blame me for them and then yell at me for them and stuff like that. So like, this is like such a horrible, toxic work environment. And watching this movie kind of like triggered some mild PTSD that I have about that job Um, but I still enjoyed the movie all the same but yeah I I think I watched this movie around the same time so that would have been in like 2009 ish that I saw the movie for the first time when I was working at this job and I was like yeah this used to be my life But yeah, so that's my history with it. I only saw it the one time and then uh, until rewatching it for this episode. Shall I do the recap? Yeah, I've, I didn't, I, I'm so interested to hear all, everyone's repressed uh, <laughs> assistant <laughs> memories. This is fascinating. Yeah. I was wondering uh, if I was going to have any Playboy flashbacks when I was watching, oh, yeah. because I've also worked at a print magazine, uh, but no one, uh, if you're working at a, a magazine that is failing and no longer culturally relevant, the <laughs> pressure is lower. It's just kind of sure. sad. <laughs> There's just alcohol everywhere. <laughs> so no PTSD oh. ties for me, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. All right, let's recap. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So Feeling we meet. Left out. 
<laughs> we're all we're all part of this. We meet Andy Sachs. That's Anne Hathaway's character. She interviews for a job to be the second assistant of Miranda Priestly. She's a recent Brown grad. She's an aspiring journalist. She's got Wait, a Northwestern. 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 Sorry, no. <laughs> Excuse Lauren, <laughs> Lauren Weisberger was a re- oh, okay. recent. Uh, oh, got it. Okay. There's so many details of this story where Lauren Weisberger changes one thing, mm-hmm. and she's like, "It's not me." <laughs> Andy has a middle part, so we know she is not a fashion icon. <laughs> um, it's coded Anne Hathaway language. Yeah. And Miranda Priestley, Meryl Street, Street of course. Yes. Um, she is the editor in chief of Runway, a like high end fashion magazine. Similar to one we may know. Mm, yeah. I wonder what it could be. I don't know. And she, her whole thing is that she is. A bitch. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of her thing. It's kind of her thing. She's very high maintenance. She's very demanding. She wears scarves. She wears scarves. Big part of her identity. Hermes scarves. Not just Hermes I don't even know what that means. (laughs) Like these French. Is it French? Yes. French silk scarf. (laughs) Yeah, which is a play on Anna Wintour always wears gigantic sunglasses that make her look like a bug. Mm-hmm. The wild part about when Andy comes in to interview for the job, she's like, "Oh, it was be- like the temp agency center." Yeah, she's like, it, be- "It was between this very glamorous, like high budget magazine and like auto, auto trader or something like that." Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, "Bitch, really? Like, damn." Also, don't say that in the interview, <laughs> right? There are so the way she conducts herself in that interview is very strange the way everyone conducts themselves in that interview but it's like imagine having the gall to go into an interview for whether you care about the industry or not like a sought after job and just be like i don't know what this is i don't know i think i'm too good for it and who are you anyways i'd like the job Never heard like, of it. Whoa. It's like, wow. I was on Emily Blunt's side for that because Emily Blunt is like, why did you hire her? I was like, yeah. no one knows. <laughs> yeah. So basically, Miranda takes a chance on her because Andy makes a case for herself. She's like, yeah, I don't yeah. fit in here, but I'm smart and I learn fast and I'm a hard worker and I'll do a good job. So Miranda hires her. We've met Emily, played by Emily blunt and she is similarly like ruthless and um kind of dismissive of andy and she's like the first assistant so she gets the more important responsibilities and she gets to go to paris for a week with miranda and she she lives and dies for it we learn about the book which is like a mock-up of the current issue which miranda looks at and gives notes on every night hard copy this is like shockingly i don't magazines are weird because it's like print is dead right <laughs> and it also was dead in 2006 yeah slightly less, less, less dead so, but yeah. still pretty Dying. pretty dead I, I do have to interject a little yeah <laughs> yeah because uh, bitch media also makes a print magazine four times a year it's a quarterly magazine Ooh. and it is i mean it's very expensive mm-hmm. so i think that's why it's super dead it is super dead yeah um, and like Bitch Media is like reader funded, so like we're always doing the annoying kind of um, donate to us so we can keep printing this magazine campaigns. Yeah. But yeah, like we do, we do have to do a book. It's so that you can print it out and look at it and see what it looks like when it's gonna go to print. Mm-hmm. But the wild thing that I think about Andy is that like she's like, "What's a book?" <laughs> right. I'm like, girl, you went to Northwestern. You guys never like printed things up to prove. Yeah, before she studied you journalism. Print mm-hmm. them, you know. So like there are these moments where it's just like, I. 
I'm just like, why did you write Andy like this? It's so infuriating. Yeah, there's like certain things that if she were, yeah, like if she were a journalism major, she would know about a mock-up. You would think. But at at every magazine I've ever, the book is still a thing. It's Mm -hmm. still a... Is it? Yeah, there used to be this man who our old editor-in-chief at Playboy would drive the book to Hugh Hefner's freaky mansion every day at 4 p.m. And Hugh Hefner would be like, do this. And then he'd have to drive the book back. It was like a whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, can we teach Hugh Hefner how to use email? And the answer is like, no, you can't. So this is weird shuttling. Well, that's the thing with thing. this movie is that it's like such an important responsibility to deliver yeah. the book that uh, normally it would be the second assistant's job. But until Miranda trusts Andy to not be like a dangerous person, uh, she she's not going to do it. Um, yeah, get rid of that middle part, and then we'll talk. <laughs> we meet Nigel, which is Stanley Tucci, the Tucci, oh, if the you will. Tucci. <laughs> the Tucci is in rare form in this movie. Yes, the Tucci. I mean, his character is all over the place, but right. uh, I love when Tucci gets work. Which is a lot. He's in it's so many movies. It's not, <laughs> it's not like he's struggling. Tooch, uh, okay, Tooch and Alfred Molina mm-hmm. both delivered killer performances in Feud last year. So well, good for them. Good for them. I mean, Tooch was nominated. Alfred, as we know, was snubbed. snubbed. Mm-hmm. So, but you know what, Alfred that. was on our podcast. So, so who's the real winner here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So Andy is having a really hard time with the job at first because Miranda is a devil who wears Prada. I love I I love that stupid ridiculous shot of her getting out of the car and then they zoom in on that bag that she's yeah, carrying. Yeah, she's like you just know, in case in, in the you're grocery. Sure. Oh. It's like the a Prada, Prada logo is so oh. big. It's just it's so it's like such an obnoxious filming like device but i like loved it still i thought it was fun i like the things that this movie chooses to knock you over the head with i'm usually okay yeah i'm like you know what she is a devil and she does and she She does wear there's no way around it Um, meanwhile, Andy has a boyfriend named Nate and in Entourage, who is Vince, whatever the fuck his name is in Entourage, a show that I unfortunately did watch six oh, really? seasons of. Yeah, I'm embarrassed Dang. about it. No, but... we all have our we all have our things that mm-hmm. are dark. Um, and she's got her friends, and they're all like, "Wow, your job sounds crazy." Oh my god, <laughs> Tracy Toms is one of the mm-hmm. friends from Rent. Yes. Always criminally underused mm-hmm. in any yeah. supporting role she's given. Mm-hmm. She's great. We don't even learn her name until like toward the end of the movie. The very end when yeah. there's like a conflict. When she's like, Lily, hey. Wow. You're like, oh. Oh, your name is Lily. Also, cool. the guy, the, the my crush from Mad Men uh, is in the yes. friend group too, oh, Rich sure. Summer. Yeah. Doug. Yeah. Yeah, Doug, Doug. Uh, he's a I'm first. I I will never watch Mad Men again, but he was the cutest. He was kind of like a beta. Yeah, in Mad Men, he's right? A, he's a thick beta boy. He's like a thick a thick horny beta. <laughs> I guess thick horny beta. Yeah, that about that's your type. Beta boy. That that, I think that's like your new line of merch. <laughs> Just for thick horny betas. <laughs> 
Uh, and then, yeah, there is that scene where Miranda gives this big monologue about Cerulean. Cerulean and it's she's kind of like, the iconic monologue of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Besides when she says, I'm the devil and I, <laughs> and wear, I wear Prada. Prada. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> Which I, is what I, everyone I remembers. Didn't see, I didn't see that. Oh, really? Scene. It happens in like four <laughs> different scenes. Wait, yeah. Guys, what, what version am I watching? It's in that shot where you see her for the first time. She looks to camera. Says, I'm the devil. I'm I the devil. Wear Prada. Prada. Oh, wow. I'm watching the wrong version. Yeah. <laughs> bootleg version. Yeah. I, got, I got in China. You gotta get the double bootleg version. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, Meryl Streep breaking the fourth wall. <laughs> uh, so then Andy's starting to get the hang of the job, but she is also like still making mistakes. And she's like, why doesn't Miranda appreciate my work? She goes to Nigel for advice. Oh, and then we get one of the uh, most intense anti-millennial tirades I've ever heard <sighs> in a movie. That scene bugged me. I mean, and this was like 2006 is like the beginning of like, you all think you're so special, don't you? You need praise for everything. And it's just like, she just wants to be, you know, she's making like $2 an hour mm-hmm. and is being screamed at. Can you? And he's like, yeah, you need to like, it's like an old man saying like, I had to walk five miles in right. the snow to be whipped by Meryl Streep. And like, <laughs> That sort of, we'll get to that, but that whole vibe was like, oh, this is like early millennial hatred in mm-hmm. movies. He also says, which is a line that gets repeated a number of times in the movie, but it's like, a million girls would kill to have your job. And that's something my old boss said to me regularly. Wow. Ew. When oh I was like, I'd be doing a good job. And he's yeah. like, you know what? You million girls would kill to have the job you have right now. And it's like, no, they wouldn't. Can this job sucks. Dick away. Yeah. <laughs> it's from the book. Because all over the book, I don't know if you remember, like, but mm-hmm. it, it says like, multiple characters say that to her mm, and so yeah. that's one of the things that definitely carried over yeah. into the movie yeah that makes sense very gaslighty work environment uh-huh. but it's, that seems like a reflection of at least her experience and it sounds like a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of us yeah it's a, it's a way to be like chicks. hey you're disposable so if you don't do a better job so, like yeah like i can be mean to you and mm-hmm. if someone's mean to you don't say anything or we'll just be mean to someone else yeah exactly you know listening to you guys say this i'm like oh my god that is fucked up because like so when i read the book and i watched the movie i was like yeah a million girls would die for that job andy do a better job <laughs> I think I got gaslit. <laughs> well, the tricky thing is, like, do. he's probably not factually incorrect. <laughs> like, there would be someone who would take her job in a second. But just, like, the standard of, like, yeah, if you want to be in an entry-level position, you have to be flogged. Like, yeah. it's just... Like, take the abuse that we give you. Brutal. Yeah. Okay. So then Anyways, he's like, Rich okay, Summer's I'll give hot. you some some cute clothes, Andy. And so she gets a, a, an off-screen makeover, but a makeover nonetheless. Which Middle will, part, nowhere to be found. It's gone. She's, She's got bangs now. <laughs> All the, I love that, like, there's a little, this movie's just old enough that you need to listen to the music cue to figure out if it's a cute <laughs> outfit or not, because it's not a cute outfit now. <laughs> like, the outfit Andy walks into the office with, it's like this weird, like, gossip girl private school jacket you're like what is this but the music is like i was like oh i guess this is good it's chanel obviously i still don't know anything about fashion which according to this movie i should 
just fucking go and live in a hole. But I, I still can't tell if outfits are good or not. So I don't know. Anyway, so um, so she shows up to work. She's looking all sleek and high fashion. Emily's like, oh, my God. She goes, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Even Miranda is impressed. And then Andy's like giving her friends presents. She's talking about fashion stuff. They're like, wow, you drank the Kool Aid, I guess. And then after she gives them these amazing presents, they're mean. Yeah, her friends are like, they don't don't get it. So those scenes, yeah, I'm excited to talk about those scenes because her friends, because she is being weird. And I don't have, has that ever happened to either of you where like you get a new job or you get like really into something and then your friends are kind of like, oh yeah, like James really into this fucking weird shit right now. Like when I, I don't uh, know. Me every day with Paddington. <laughs> <laughs> but like, has it ever caused an actual, like, I don't know. I've worked for not so like many real tension though. Freaky. Oh, okay. I've had experiences like that before. Oh, sorry. Where, I already apologized for oh, it, Jamie. No. When I was I like, made fun actually, of you. Caitlin, <laughs> I actually have a bone to pick with you today. <laughs> no, I just like my my cousins didn't like when I was going through a phase in my career where I was when I was butt chugging on a cam- on I camera. See. So that was were a they rift. concerned about your health? No, that's if they had been concerned about my health, I would have been like, oh, it's I am too. (laughs) But they weren't. They were just like, not a good look. What if you want to run for office? And I was like, screw you guys. Miranda's calling. And then then I left the table. Anyways, relatable scene. Yes, of course. course. (laughs) And then Andy goes to an event and she meets uh, Christian Thompson. Mm. Flesh colored hair. Writer whose work she admires is played by Simon Baker. Flesh colored hair. <laughs> yep, no, no, a blonde no. adult male. Uh, she starts to get the hang of the job. Uh, she finally does something well enough. I think it's like a Harry Potter based plot point that um, gets oh, her yeah. for Miranda to trust her to deliver the book. She considers quitting for a brief moment, but then like Christian Thompson saves the day with the Harry Potter book. It's and then, causing a rift with Entourage. Yeah, so their their relationship is tense. Um, and then lately, Emily's been making a lot of mistakes at work, so Miranda is like, hey, Andy, I want you to go to Paris with me instead of Emily. And then like Andy has to tell Emily this. It's like this whole thing. She gets hit by a taxi. She and Nate break up, and then she goes to Paris and kisses a fucking creep. We'll talk about him in a moment. Oh, yeah. He's like, you want to get published in The New Yorker? Give me a little kiss. I'm like, no. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite part is when they're in Paris walking around together, and Andy says, like, I never understood what it was about Paris, but it's so beautiful. And he's like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What is this scene? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then Andy learns that they're going to replace Miranda as editor-in-chief with a younger woman named Jacqueline. And she goes to tell Miranda about it. And she's like, it's fine. Don't worry. And then it turns out Miranda, to save her job, she sells out Nigel, who thought he was going to be made partner of this new fashion company. But instead, like, Miranda shoves Jacqueline into that position so that she can keep her job and then Andy's like what you did to Nigel I could never do something like that and Miranda's like like, honey you You already already did did. and she's like you're right I suck and then she (laughs) 
has, she walks away. She quits her job. She throws her phone in the fountain. She throws her like sidekick into a fountain. They're <laughs> like, yes, 2006. <laughs> and then she gets a job at, I don't exactly know what so magazine like, it's meant to be. I think it's a newspaper. It's a newspaper. newspaper. Okay. Yeah. And then she. And then Nate, Nate tries to get back together with her. It's but unclear. it seems like it doesn't happen. Well, because he's like, you, maybe we'll work something. Maybe we'll figure something out. And she's like, yeah, maybe we will. Yeah. And then that's the end but of that. But he's moving to Boston. Right. Yeah, yeah. But then he just said, like, it, the way he phrases it is wild because it's like she's apologizing to him and she owes him an apology. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, it's fine. I got a job in Boston. And she's like, oh, wow. And he's like, so I guess we're moving there. And it's like, this should be a discussion. Right, because he's like, there's cheese in Boston and bread. <laughs> right. So I can still make you bread cheese sandwiches there. That's when what they're called, live, right? It would, but then she gets a job. Right, she gets a job. It's unclear. Yeah. Who knows? But anyway, that's pretty much I mean, the end cares? of the movie. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come right back to discuss. <laughs> I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. 
guess what? What? <laughs> There's been three sequels written to The Devil Wears oh, Prada. Oh, my goodness. Which, uh, between Amy and myself, we agree was not a well-written book in the first place. <laughs> was mainly a hit because it's a hit piece on Anna Wintour. Yeah. Uh, but Lauren Weisberger, she's still grinding them out. In the oeuvre, mm-hmm. there's The Devil Wears Prada. There is Last Night at Chateau Marmont. Wow. Mm. There's Revenge Wears Prada. Ooh. And most recently, there is When Life Gives You Lululemons. <laughs> okay. Just published last year. You know, I Sold love a good... six copies. I love a good <laughs> play on words, so I appreciate that. And also, I respect a working writer, so... I, yeah. love, I love a working li- writer. I don't love a book called When Life Gives You Lululemons. <laughs> but... Do you make Lulu lemonade? I guess. Yes. I oh. mean, I guess we have to buy and find out. So where should we start? Oh, there's so there's so much to talk about in, yeah. in this movie. And a lot of uh, shades of gray in terms of how everything is is dealt with. I don't yes. know. Where would you, where, where well, would you like to start? Let me point out... In the very opening shots of the movie, like over the credits, we are seeing disembodied female body parts putting on bras, putting on underwear, stockings, mm-hmm. and then it becomes a like, one of these girls is not like the other montage where it's like all these conventionally beautiful women putting on all their like fancy lingerie and their makeup and their like skirts and high heels. And we contrast that with Anne Hathaway's character who is dressed in a way that's, you know, perhaps not quite as hyper feminine as these other shots we're seeing. Dare I say she's not like the other girls? That's exactly what the movie is saying. And it's like the other women are like counting out seven almonds for breakfast. And then she's eating like a bagel and cream cheese. The others are taking like taxis or town cars she takes the subway so it's like very much like a it's like setting up a working girl kind of character Mm -hmm. for her i think it's still like this this movie comes out five years after the princess diaries and anne hathaway is still we're still suspending our disbelief to be like what an uggo like (laughs) jesus christ why why is this where anne hathaway is typecast Mm -hmm. there are moments pre andy getting rid of her middle part uh and wearing less layers that it seems like it's referencing the princess diaries in in terms of like how people treat her and Mm -hmm. all this Uh, it's just i'm just like man i'm I'm tired of having to pretend anne hathaway is ugly i don't have any more (laughs) belief to suspend right and it's when she starts to change her look that that coincides story-wise with her getting better at her job and and Whenever she goes to Nigel to be like, what can I do to be taken more seriously here? Her idea is to dress better, which makes sense. It is a fashion magazine. But like that's, it seems like that's the only idea she has. It's not like, how else can I be better at the administrative aspects of my job? Like, and she, we do see her improve in those ways. But her main idea to like be better at her job is to look better. But I think I wonder if that's like a game she has to play to earn the respect of Miranda so that Miranda doesn't treat her like shit as much. Yeah, Yeah, because I think when Miranda does see that she puts effort into dressing better, then she gives her a little bit more respect and actually starts calling her by her name. Yeah. You know, I think that's really telling when she does decide to. And it was and it wasn't after she did like heroic things job wise, but it's because she noticed that she dressed. better. Yeah. Right. Like she's not doing necessarily a better job she just looks different doing it yes and that's what garners the respect 
Um, and then real quick back to the opening sequence where like I was thinking those women you were seeing who were like putting on all like the high fashion items would be the other women women who are interviewing for that job and that might be what's implied but we don't see those women again so they're basically just on screen so that we can one see their like disembodied female body parts and to demonstrate how Andy is not like the other girls so like that's the only function I kind of disagree with that yeah I think that a lot of I mean the first like 10 minutes of this movie are so tight in terms of like you get everything you need to know I thought that that was also just conveying a theme of like presenting you with the runway woman type Mm -hmm. of like here's an example of a woman who uses this magazine as her bible it's like I think on one side of the screen we're seeing people who presumably subscribe to runway or at least the ideas that runway is selling and uh, so I, I think that there's enough function and, and I'm, you know, always for calling out when like women's bodies are being used in like weird crops and like yeah. sexualized crops. But I didn't I didn't think that that was what that sequence was trying to do. It didn't seem like they were trying to sexualize it. It is kind of like an oversimplification of like some women be like this, other women mm. be like this. But at least it I to me tied into like the theme sure it was effective in demonstrating that like type of woman and stuff like that and the strange thing was that like i think there are at least two or three different women of color in that opening montage mm-hmm. and then lily you know what i mean for the rest yeah. of the movie so yeah. they were like i think they are used as props in this way to to differentiate andy from like the other types of women like you're saying like runway-ish women yeah but it's interesting that they casted women who very much didn't look like her in terms of like women of color but then didn't like plant more women of color throughout the world mm-hmm. of like yeah um, runway or just new york city or like people she interacted this, with this is one of yeah, those movies that takes place new in city, a new yeah. york city where only white people live and work yeah. and, I, and i and i bet that when they casted um the lily character they were like we need a we need a person of color in this that's what it yeah it, it really like. does feel like they just slotted her in mm-hmm. and because i was like trying to think about like the representation of like people of color in this movie and i yeah. was like wow look at all these women of color and just like the opening moments which is mm-hmm. very really interesting but that like they don't speak they're just like there to be looked at right um so that was like a a thing where i was thinking like what are they trying to do here and i I don't really have an answer i was just like pontificating on it yeah Yeah, no that's important to note and especially with like lily's character where she is so shoehorned into the storyline because we don't know anything about her caitlin like we were saying we don't know her name until Mm -hmm. very late in the movie and she's I thought even like even worse than a classic like best friend in a movie role where at least most best friend in a movie roles, you know, at least something about them, you know, like where they work. How do they know each other? How long have they known each other? How do they feel about literally anything other than what's happening to the protagonist? But like Lily is there to provide exposition and like besides her boyfriend, who's Nate, is that right? Nate. But to, like, provide some sort of, like, you've changed. Like, that's mm-hmm. the only reason she's We there. do and know sucks, her Tracy job rules. vaguely, which is that she is an artist who 
has a gallery show. New York. Right. <laughs> the two, the, those York two women in the character. job have the only two jobs that women are allowed to have yes. in movies, especially when you live in New York City, which is you work at a gallery or you work at a magazine. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's like a lot of boring stuff to explore in that friendship. <laughs> and and I think they, they've known each other. She said, like, I've known you for 16 years. So we know that like, they must have known each other as like high school as students kids. or like yeah. kids or something. Yeah. 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 But it's so funny that you guys are bringing up that like there's only two types of jobs that you can have there because even her job served as a plot point because it didn't make sense when like they go to that gallery opening and Lily's like hey I designed this to like you gotta go to the back and start from the back and go to the front which makes zero sense in terms of like design of experiencing a gallery show like who goes to the back to like work the way to the front but it's a plot thing because it makes Andy go to the back and then Christian meets her there mm-hmm. and then they're like, ooh, they're having their secret rendezvous. Yeah. And then like he kisses her and it's like supposed to look like sneaky. Mm-hmm. Um, but she could have not have said that made made her sh- gallery show look ridiculous. She, it could have just been like, hey, have a look around. And then like Andy could have just been in the back, right? But like even when they're giving like Lily an interesting job, they made her look like a dummy. <laughs> just so that like we could usher that, yeah. usher them and block them into the back of the gallery. Yeah, made no sense. Uh-huh. Rude. Uh, the Lily character, I mean, the movie fails her in every way. Yeah, and they had such a. Uh, I just love Tracy Tom so much. She's great. Well, we can talk about the fact that this movie is one of the guiltiest examples of a movie that like portrays the trope of. A career woman who is successful and in a leadership role in in her professional life, she is a fucking bitch. Yeah. There's, like, a lot of, like, second... I feel like we've been coming up against all these, like, very strong second wave feminism, like, cautionary tales mm-hmm. recently when I was doing some background. And, and, and I, I, I will say that I think Miranda's character is presented in the movie, I don't think in the book, but presented in the movie with more nuance and backstory than you get for most of these characters who, like, prior to this movie are used strictly as, like... If you don't settle down, this will be you. And you're just, I mean, if you think about like Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction is like this successful career woman and her lack of like a heteronormative perfect life drives her insane into Mm -hmm. murder. And (laughs) there's uh, another movie that I don't know why I saw it a bunch of times when I was younger, but a movie called Working Girl came out in 1988. Sigourney Weaver is the mean lady boss in in that, um, and she steals an idea from her secretary, who's Melanie Griffith. It's a similar stock character whose background goes completely unexplored. Mm-hmm. I think this, I, I don't know, the Miranda conversation's tricky, but this movie attempts to address some of those tropes, but it doesn't... I don't know. It doesn't effectively comment on or subvert quite enough for me. But I do think it's interesting that, you know, if you look at, especially like the Glenn Close character, usually a woman with ambition has to shoulder some horrible consequence Mm -hmm. of that ambition. And that's like one choice with the Miranda character that I thought was like 
cool and interesting is that Miranda is horrible. She fucks Stanley Tucci over. Yep. She doesn't apologize for it, and she suffers no consequences, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a very corporate feminism take on mm-hmm. that. But you don't usually see that with, like, an ambitious woman. She's usually punished by the story. That's true. And we do see that line where Andy is talking about Miranda and says something like, yeah, she's tough, but if Miranda were a man, no one would notice anything about her except how great she is at her job. So that is, right. like, one of the few attempts the movie makes at being, like, See, we get it. Feminism, right? Which is but, something. Yeah. I agree that like it's it's hard to like place Miranda in yeah. a way like like we said earlier I was just like maybe I'm just like a a forever gaslit person but like <laughs> I was just like Miranda's just really good at her job. You know, and like yeah, she has like her really bitchy moments and, but but even her bitchy moments are like so beautiful like the, you know that montage of her like slamming her purse and her coat on the <laughs> yes. on the desk i'm like i i will just watch that montage sometimes i will just google it and, and like look up the montage like and i'll just watch it because i'm like yes like i look at the outfits she's wearing i look at what andy is wearing i look at the reactions i look mm-hmm. at what she's i want to hear again what she's asking for she's just asking for like vague shit like where's that piece of paper i had in my hand i'm like yeah where is that piece yeah. of paper you know? <laughs> But, like, <laughs> I think that for somebody of her caliber and, like, the job that she does, sometimes, like, you just have so much shit going on. You just can't keep track of everything. Mm-hmm. But, like, because it's being delivered through a woman and not a man, like, I think we have, like, feelings about that because we expect women to act a specific way. Right. Mm-hmm. So I do feel like, yeah, like, she's not a very kind boss a lot of the times. She can be really hard to work for, but... She's the devil who <laughs> wears Prada. She's a Prada-wearing devil. Says over and over. <laughs> Just in case you forgot, I am the devil who wears Prada. But I wonder if, like... This is just on the spectrum of women who work and this is how they behave. Mm-hmm. Like maybe she's on the far end of like a really not great boss, but it's just like one of the portrayals of women who work. Right. And like, you know, and if we think that like women bosses who are like that are just bitchy and awful, then like that will always just be a trope. But I just kind of lay her on that spectrum because like there are moments where I think I think it's a Meryl thing that gave her this like nuance where, you know, like when she answered her her phone, um, uh, her daughter called, she's like, oh, hey, Bubsy. I'm like, oh, my gosh, she's a mom. Yeah. yeah. You know, or like even when she fucked Sally Tucci over for that job, I was like, she's saving herself because like the industry is ageist right. or like right. the industry doesn't want to pay her what she's worth. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm sorry, Stanley. But like also Stanley is a, a man like he doesn't have to work for her if he doesn't want to. Right. Like if he wanted to go off on his own, I'm sure he could ask permission and be like, yo, you kind of fuck me over. Can I leave? She's I think she's reasonable enough to be like, yes. Which to some extent, Stanley knows, because when it happens, he just sits there and is like, my time will come. And it's it's a sad moment. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's a difficult moment for that character. But you're totally right. Yeah. It's like she is saving her ass because no one else is going to yeah. like no one is going to come to bat for an older woman trying to survive in a very high pressure environment which i think you know you see proven over and over right and one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough where we see the trope of professional women in high status jobs being portrayed as being these difficult heinous women but what gets ignored is that if they are perhaps acting that way sometimes It probably has something to do with the fact that women, in order to be taken seriously in the professional sphere and to climb the ladder, they have to work harder than their like male counterparts. They might have to be kind of more ruthless and just like 
any number of things to be taken seriously because, yeah, the industries are sexist. They are ageist. And for her to behave this way is probably a direct response to the way that women are treated in every aspect of their life. Right. It's I, and another thing that this movie avoided for me. It's a, it's not a trope that really existed as much in 2006. I think it's like a slowly emerging one uh, that I don't know if I'm going to articulate it right. But um, this sort of avoids the Miranda character avoids the tropes of like a girl boss character mm-hmm. where the girl boss trope is something that drives me nuts, whether it's like someone perform being a performative business person or in in a in a, a piece of narrative fiction where it's like a woman who is a capitalist at her core mm. even if you know she's she's good at her job she's a business owner she's a capitalist but then posits it as like but i'm like one of you it's like Sheryl Sandberg is like peak girl boss mm-hmm. where it's like someone who is doing a bad thing mm-hmm. but is treated like oh no but she's actually like yes queen you know and 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 she she uses like the veil of feminism exactly. to be like me being empowered empowers you. And mm-hmm. I don't think Miranda does that. Miranda's no. just a person working a job, and she has like self awareness because like there's that scene where like her and Mr. Priestley are getting a divorce, and she's like doesn't have any makeup on. And I think that the credit to how nuanced Miranda is is, is to Miss Street, uh, but <laughs> but you know she's like she's her face is bare. And she's just like oh the tabloids are gonna eat this up. Like they should pay me because they write so many pieces about me. Mm-hmm. She's like there's so much self awareness there. She knows mm-hmm. what she's projecting, but fucked it because she needs to make this excellent publication and yeah. like and she knows what she's doing. Yeah, she's like, and she's not like a faker the the way that a lot of people present themselves in similar roles, which takes a certain amount of like conviction and courage to be like, no, I'm selling shit. I know how to do it better than anyone. Mm -hmm. So pay me for doing that and and not like you're saying like covering it with a veil of like no i'm for all women it's like no miranda is here to do a job Mm -hmm. she's here to do a job and there's a lot of forces that are going to make it more difficult for her to do that job right but but like i think i wonder then if like because you know feminism corporatized feminism or marketplace feminism is so trendy now so i think that's Mm -hmm. why like girl boss tropes are like flourishing but if it was as trendy then because like Feminism was still very much like a, a four-letter word, you know, yeah. like just even 10 years ago, which is so yeah. wild to think about. Yeah. But if it wasn't, I wonder if what would have happened to the Miranda character. I, I know. Well, I, yeah. I it's mean, that's like, just like a what if. I don't know. I mean, I guess, how do people view Anna Wintour right now? <laughs> because it does seem like yeah. most women, there's, I would imagine some pressure right now to for women working in high levels of business to put on that mask and that's not to say that it's not at least sincerely held in part, but it's just, I don't know, corporate feminism freaks me the fuck out of like, we think you're beautiful, buy this soap, also we're waging war in Myanmar, sorry. Mm-hmm. Like that sort Whoa, of like- Whoa, who's selling that soap? Cheryl Sandberg. <laughs> Cheryl Sandberg. She's the scariest wow. person alive. Uh, but I I wonder if, if, if this movie came out today, if that would be sort of addressed, but there's not- I mean, it's weird. Any any manner of like outright feminist statements are strictly made by Andy mm-hmm. and are usually shot down. <laughs> right. We got to take another quick break, but we'll be right back after that. 
I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Amy, going back to a scene that you were talking about really briefly, where Miranda is talking about her like impending divorce. Mm-hmm. So that's an example that we see in a movie where it's a character who is a professional successful woman but her personal life is in shambles basically which is perhaps sometimes a realistic portrayal especially when it's you know the man the husband who resents the fact that his wife his wife (laughs) is successful and you know feels threatened by that or emasculated by that or whatever because it's a really subtle moment in the movie but whenever andy is delivering the book to uh, Miranda's house for the first time and like was, was like yeah it's a good idea to go upstairs <laughs> right. and she overhears a conversation where Miranda's husband is saying something like oh you know people are, are looking at me in the restaurant thinking he's waiting for her yet again which shows that he is threatened by the fact that like what people he's think of him yeah. yeah so on one hand it's like yeah you see this what may be a realistic portrayal of like a man being threatened by his wife's success his wife's success 
<laughs> but then you also have to see a woman who is successful in her profession uh, have her personal life be compromised, basically. Yeah. So it, I don't really quite know how to feel about it. For the most part, it worked for me. Mm-hmm. For the most part. I mean, partially because this movie has the benefit of getting to be like, well, it's technically based on Anna Wintour. And a lot of that personal life stuff is adapted from Anna Wintour's life with two failed marriages, two kids trying to balance motherhood. And, and, The reason I liked seeing, I mean, just learning anything about a character like Miranda's personal life in a way that doesn't make her completely tragic, in a way that might have been easy, the easy choice of like, well, she's so good at her job, but look, her personal life is difficult. And instead of leaving it at that, we go back to her job and watch her be really fucking good at her job and ruthless in her job again. So there's like some nuance presented Mm -hmm. I don't know. There is a weird like halfwayness of implying that like, well, her personal life is suffering in this very specific way. But then I'm like, I guess if you had shown like, and she's actually an incredible mother and no one credit, like that would have felt very hollow and disingenuous as well, because of course... And this is kind of implied about her a, a number of times. There is still this expectation of Miranda to like be a mother that is not usually put on male professionals at that level. They're like, oh, well, isn't there a nanny? Isn't there a mom that's mm-hmm. taking care of the kids? But she's still expected to have the same level of, you know, affection and 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 dotingness that a stereotypical mother did, which they which is is. Again, there's a lot of stuff that feels halfway addressed. You're right. I, I think for the, the thing about their marriage ending, in a way, I I kind of not appreciated it, but, like, I think it spoke to this notion that, like, oh, we can have it all. Like, you know, like, there was that second wave of feminism, which, whichever wave or that we think that, like, women were being told, like, you can go to work and you can have a family, yeah, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And, and, like, I think that, like, our generation of women is like, no, you guys are f- – you guys are fucking tired. You fucking are miserable. You you divorced your partners because it's really hard to do this. Mm-hmm. And some of us are childless or some of us like have kids and don't work because it's, that's why people have wives. That's why men have wives so that they, they can have a job. I often say to my partner, I'm like, I wish I had a fucking wife. So like they can do all this shit. Just, just even like, yeah. sometimes I'll like, I'll give him like, you know, rub his feet. I'm like, I wish I had a fucking wife to rub my feet because he didn't do it good. You know what I mean? I can't have it all either. But I'm saying like in that moment it made me think like, yes, like she's really good at her job and it's, it can be in sacrifice of her personal life, but she chose it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's what, in the end, like feminism is about, like whatever you choose. And in, and in that scene, she's not that sad that the marriage ended. Like if you hear what she says, mm-hmm. she's sad at how it's going to affect her kids. Yeah. 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 She I, says, I don't care what anybody writes about me, but my girls, it's so unfair to my girls. Right. So, right. and I think that was like, you know, the script's way or Miranda's way of saying like, the job is way more important to her than her marriage, but her kids are maybe like the number one. Yeah. And I think that was important to point out. And 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 I think it, it's it was necessary so that we're not thinking like a Miranda type of person can be who she is and then also have like a really great support system because it's maybe not completely realistic. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I appreciated that. I liked I, I, I liked it. And it's like there 
the tropiness that I loved about like the only scene where Miranda's not wearing makeup and you're just like, <laughs> oh, it's great. <laughs> oh, Jane Fonda does it all the time in Grace and Frankie. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Jane Fonda does this thing in Grace. Has, has anyone seen? Yes. It? Okay. Yeah. In the first episode of Grace and Frankie, where Jane Fonda apparently has some sort of wire around her head oh. to hold. Her head on skin, yes, her head falls off in the pilot episode. (laughs) (laughs) But I saw a beauty regimen of a caliber even I wasn't familiar of. That like I don't know. I love Grace and Frankie. Jane Fonda has a wire around her head. Wow, like to pull, like to to pull pull skin back. But it was a wire attached to her wig. But she also Jane Fonda is a legend. I mean, but even like when Meryl Streep's bare face, they do these close up on her face, and I'm like, girl, who is your doctor? Because good job. <laughs> or, or what is the wire yeah. wearing? Cause Where's her, the wire? <laughs> yes, because like her skin's looking good and like it's very good skin. I have a high def television set, guys. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have one. I do. No, but, I'm like, poor. But like I was thinking, like like she either has a really good doctor or like some kind of like wire thing. But like she looks magnificent in it. And she can't go bareface. But like for us as viewers, we're like, oh my god, so brave that like a woman with gray hair went bareface. Yeah. You know, like I, I'm a victim. We're of conditioned that. to yeah. think that way, yeah. Yeah. and we're yeah. conditioned to think wow she looks so good yeah. pause for her age and it's like no like she, she looks good, looks good. Yeah. yeah that's a way of like society and i think society. the movie feels that way too i think the movie like wants you to be like I don't know, some mix of like either like, wow, she looks different or like, wow, she looks good like you're saying, for her age. I don't know that the movie's necessarily like this should be normalized. Like mm-hmm. that I don't think that that's no, this movie's that's not the intention vibe. Um, but we all we all, like I'm having to undo a lot of conditioning where I like will catch myself thinking, "Oh, wow, she looks really good for her age." Mm-hmm. But it's like, no, that's a horrible way to think because like we are conditioned to think that as women age, they, you know, they lose their value and, you know, we have this standard of beauty that says that only young women can be considered attractive and like I'm having to like undo a lot of this thinking still. Yeah. Uh, shall we talk about Andy? Yes. Let's talk about Andy. Andy is uh, an interesting, an interesting character. Mm-hmm. I right at the top, we briefly talked about her interview, but I've just never seen anyone succeed with such a flippant attitude <laughs> towards the very powerful job they're applying to. Mm-hmm. But you know, she does. Um, <laughs> but she does. There is, there is like another a narrative for her too that is like trying to have it all, and personal life suffers as a result that happens as well Mm -hmm. and it's weird it's like the resolution to that is a little confusing to me where it's like she's trying to have it all but then her friends and her boyfriend are like you've changed which she has Mm -hmm. Uh, and then she decides fuck it I'm throwing my sidekick into the fountain (laughs) and then I don't know. I mean, the ending is kind of ambiguous for her of like, is she in a relationship? Does that what she wants? Like, we don't we still don't really know. But it didn't bother me too much. I think when the film came out, you know, like 10 years ago or whatever, Mm -hmm. I think we wanted to think that like they were still together and that those things were important. But I think that there are like new memes now when people talk about the movie where Mm -hmm. they're like, can we talk about how trash her boyfriend and friends were? Like (laughs) they were not good. Like, they were not a good support system, you no, know? No, they weren't. Like, who moves to New York City and, and thinks that they're going to get, like, some amazing job right off the bat? Nobody does. Right. You know, so, like, this notion that, like, she moved to New York City, she's struggling on a job, like, 
and all you guys do are like poke fun at her the shit on her yes. yeah <laughs> and and almost like risk her losing her job at one point when they like throw her phone around when Miranda's right. yeah, calling yeah yeah I was on Andy's side yes, in that, that scene because yeah. I'm like yeah. you guys are being horrible yeah. there's also a moment early on where her friend Doug um says something like oh Miranda Priestley is famous for being unpredictable and Andy's like how do you know who she is and I don't and then Doug says I'm actually a girl <laughs> and then Lily says that would explain a lot I <laughs> don't like, what is- know <laughs> what you meant by that so I guess it's implying yeah like only a woman would know who a fashion icon is that's reductive and then for Lily to say like oh yeah that would explain a lot that you're a girl like that sounds weird writing. some sort of weird some- gender phobic thing 2006 yeah. <laughs> you know it's a, we, a lot of weird exchanges uh super producer sophie just also made the note that uh, we do we do learn a little bit about andy's family life and and her when she goes to dinner with her dad there's a very similar vibe of like why aren't you working and i'm like she's 22 yes. what are you talking oh, yeah. about and we only know her dad never meet her mom we don't meet her mom we don't mom know gets her mentioned but yeah we don't know anything about her mom at the- least she's not a disney princess the mother's alive but <laughs> right. just never just not allowed to be uh, yeah the only thing present. i mean one of the biggest things i remember that about that scene is when um he gives her a check and she's yeah. just like oh you shouldn't have but yes but but also like it was no big deal and i was like oh that's so what a life. I know. <laughs> I have never. I have really never. Because that, that must have been a check for like thousands of dollars. Yeah. What I mean, what was that? F- it was to help so with her rent, she, I think. Yeah. In New York, in yeah. that fucking apartment yeah. that she and Nader shared. Huge apartment. Gigantique. Yeah. Oh, God. And, when and I she's, was, I guess, 22 if she's a recent grad. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, gosh. When, when I was in college, my dad used to have these jars. Uh, one was for <laughs> me, one was store. for my brother. And he would put dimes in one of the jars that he just found or got as change. And he put nickels in the other jar. And at the end of every month, he'd cash out the jars. And, some, and, and that would be, like, it would always be, like, 20 bucks. But that was, like, my dad's version of that he's like here are all the dimes i found this month i found 200 dimes and sometimes it would be a dime month or sometimes it'd be my brother's dime month and if it was a shitty month you get like uh, literally a check for five dollars it's like it's a nickel month shout out mike loftus and his many jars there's a penny jar but and i was like i don't i don't my dad collected pennies in a jar too what is it with what is with dad and and coin jars my dad. dad doesn't have a jar. Now I feel left out. No. <laughs> I gotta get him some jars. I gotta bring them over. If they have jars, they will put coins in them. <laughs> no, my dad used to like, I used to bring my laundry home to do when I was in school or after I just yeah. graduated and then like take food and he would like make fun of me. He'd be like, oh, like here comes my homeless daughter. So like, <laughs> I, like that's my background. So when I saw her dad to slip her a check, like it was no big deal i was like yeah girl, i was like but but literally i think you that's how you have to survive and then that's why like you know in the media world we talk about like who gets to be interns or like who gets to be like very low paid uh workers um mm-hmm. to get their foot in the door so that they can then become like high paying editors and stuff it's like people who come from a background where like they do have a support system in that way yeah mm-hmm. but that was a moment i was like well thanks for showing that i like because you do is, feel for her a little yeah yeah it is useful to have that context and and like seeing the check passed i wonder if that was done intentionally to be like and this is the only way that 
I don't know. It's not clear. It seems like she's pretty low paid at runway. And I mean, those assistant jobs always are. Yeah. So it's, it, see, seeing the check passed, I wish it were addressed a little more because it is useful to have that context of like she's miserable mm-hmm. and she's still very privileged mm-hmm. to have this safety net to fall into or or to even imply that she has a plan B outside of this low paid nightmare job that she has is something i don't know because the film doesn't do enough of a job of um telling us like oh she needs this job for money yeah it, it t- tells us repeatedly she needs this job so she can move up that's her meal ticket yeah. into whatever job in publishing yeah. she wants yeah so i think that's another reason why that check scene stood out like oh i i forgot that maybe she can't make rent mm-hmm. you know right yeah it would be interesting to see more of a dive into that side of things. But, it, I mean, in 2006, no one was talking about that. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was, like, approaching, like, late 2000s, early 2010s was, like, peak unpaid internship, shut up and mm-hmm. take it. And mm-hmm. if you can't afford to do it, fuck you, find mm-hmm. another job. I think <laughs> what was confusing is that, like, the film was trying to make us or maybe it's trying to make us feel a way about the industry, like not just uh, media or like publications, but the fashion industry. Yeah. But then glamorizing it so much yes. because yes. because we're supposed to understand that Andy thinks it's frivolous and just stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then she starts to wear the stuff in that and that other amazing montage. This movie has so a many lot good montages. Montage. The yeah. montage game is strong. And I and I and I like I said I like YouTube it for a while <laughs> watch it written leisure. But then it glamorizes. So um, that's what left me confused. It's like, so does she appreciate it at the end? Or does she still think it's bullshit and she's happy she's gone? Because when she showed up to that newspaper job interview, she looked good. She had a she nice did, yeah. outfit on. Yeah, She was, uh, so I was, she was changed from her But then time. she gives all of her clothes that she got in Paris to Emily as like a... Which is kind of like a weird... Whatever. I mean... It's what it's Emily like an olive wanted. Branch. But I'm like, you should take her out to dinner. Like, there, I don't know that Emily would want to hang out with her. <laughs> and Emily doesn't eat, so oh yeah. Okay, oh, yeah. Can which we'll we get talk to. about? Well, I, wait, really quick. Uh, just sort of going off of what you were just saying, Amy. Wait, what were you just saying? Sorry, about fashion. I, I hated that. Oh, yeah. okay. So I agree that this movie very much, for all of the good things it does, does end up being like. So if you think that the fashion industry is stupid and manipulative you're stupid and like you're just you just haven't given it a fair shake which is a very reductive basic message of like actually fashion good it reminds me of all the pageant movies we've been doing on this podcast recently mm-hmm. where it's a similar a, a, a more muted version of what happens to Sandra Bullock in Miss Congeniality where she goes in with the middle part saying like I'm a feminist this industry is bullshit and saying things that like I think the movie by the end is like, but it's not like that. When it's like we sort of in 2019 are like, yeah, there's a lot of truth to what she's saying. Mm -hmm. But Anne Hathaway's character here, too. Yeah, it's like by the end, I don't think that we're supposed like even when she's like, this is just stuff. And the, the, the Cerulean monologue is so good, but it is trying to prove that it's like, no, this is actually good and you should be participating in it and you can't not participate in it, so you may as well just immerse yourself mm-hmm. in it, which is sort of like a similar message we get from Miss Congeniality about pageants of like, instead of defying this industry, find a way that you're comfortable participating in it, which is like not the greatest. Because like at the end of that monologue, like Miranda's just straight up like, like that 
color you're wearing we literally chose that for you like like you're saying like even if you don't choose to participate in it like you are in it because Mm -hmm. we forced it on you so you better embrace it and but the way the movie shapes like andy's arc is that like girls looking good at the end you know so like as a viewer you're like like she's glowing her skin's good like now she's a size four you know like how um yeah yeah and like she's like celebrating it and but it's not telling the viewer to be like to be like oh my god andy it's 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 telling the viewer like yes girl you know so it's like yeah it's such a confusing message and i think andy's arc is even way more confusing than miranda's arc because like for miranda we're like oh is she really an evil devil worst prada boss or can she be more and we're given more of like a nuance i think because maybe meryl street's performance but with andy it's like it's really really confusing especially because like early on i forget who she says it to but she says something like oh just because i have this job doesn't mean i'm going to change everything about myself and then she changes a lot of stuff about herself including the way she presents herself including her the way she like treats other people yeah it's it's she goes through this arc that i can't say i necessarily admire and i get by the end when she you know does the symbolic throwing of the phone into the fountain and walking away from miranda is like okay she like has reordered her priorities and she is like she changed back for the better but the movie does frame her becoming this new stylish person is like such a glamorous wonderful thing for her mm-hmm. that it sends mixed messages i think and and i think like uh, even as like useless as nate is he does say one thing where i'm like oh fuck yes when um he's like mad at her for something maybe when he she didn't go to her birthday party or like oh when he when she has to go to paris and he was like you know what i don't care that if you're into this stuff as long as you like did it with conviction right and that's the feeling i get about andy it's like like, I don't care if she's into this stuff. I don't care if she feels like she needs to lose weight. Like, that's like, – she, she can have her own agency and she can make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and if she thinks she looks better in clothes, whatever, that's, like, her thing. Like, live your life. But at least, like, be into it and, like, live yeah. that. And then I, I, I would respect that more than, like, this weird wishy-washiness. Because even when she throws the phone in the fountain, I didn't think it was, like, a, oh, I'm taking back my life again. Like, I renounced this lifestyle mm-hmm. because, like, Miranda just got done doing that thing like everybody wants to be us. I thought of it as like Andy being mad that Miranda just called her out on going to Paris. Mm-hmm. You oh, know? Right. Yeah, because it wasn't so much like everybody wants to be us because that is true. And you know what? Andy did want to be that and Andy was that. It was because like Miranda just like said, well, you just did it to Emily. Right. You know, right. which which wasn't that fair for her to say because Emily, you know, got hit by a car. But <laughs> <laughs> she went up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That I mean, and and that is a confusing like it's a confusing message to send because it's like you see what Miranda's saying but then it's implied that the solution to that is just to leave that industry and then it's fine. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just seemed like an overly simplified resolution. Andy's character's weird. And and it's it's frustrating because like like the Sandra Bullock miscongeniality character, I largely agree with everything she says at the beginning of the movie. And I, I agree with her more at the beginning of the movie than I do at the end. Yeah. So then what what was the point of the journey, I guess? Right. That's why, like, in a way, we think of this movie as, like, Andy's story. Mm -hmm. But, like, when I finished watching the movie, I'm like, 
I want to know more about Miranda. Yeah. Yeah. I want to know, like, well, who's she dating after this? Like, what are her kids grow up to be like? Who's her new assistants? What happened to Emily? You know, like, like Andy's just, like, this conduit by which I get to learn about Miranda. Yeah. <laughs> I want the best for Emily, too. Emily, I mean, Emily's character is kind of cartoony in how she's presented. And Emily Blunt is, like, so fun in this movie. It's one of her first parts ever. Mm-hmm. I-, I mean, it's weird because I think the movie counts on you being so on Andy's side that you're supposed to be like, oh, Emily is so uppity and mean. But, like, most of the time, she's right. she can be harsh, but she is usually right where she's confused as to why Andy got the job. So was I. <laughs> she's like, you don't know anything about this job you just got? Like, why did you apply? And that's supposed to be, like, mean and dismissive. But it's like, but why? Yes. Right. Like, and, and the fact that her story, her, like, B-plot gets so out of control that she gets literally hit by a car was like... I, I don't know. It's like she. I thought like ten years later, watching her, it was like there is a more grounded plot than the movie gave it credit for. Because she's just supposed to seem like Andy stealing my life and a very like female competition in the workplace mm-hmm. narrative that was kind is pretty tired, and again counts on you being on Anne Hathaway's side no matter what. But. I liked Emily's character and it was so clear that she knew exactly what she was doing and was really good at it and dedicated her life to it. And I don't understand why Andy would get preference over her. Like it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes the implication is like, well, she wants it too badly. And it's like, what, she's working too hard? She's doing, I don't know. Yeah. My main takeaway from that is that it is like kind of promoting the trope of, you know, women who work together or who are in close proximity to each other, they got to be competing because that's just how women are. And I was surprised or I don't know. I, I just suppose that I was expecting something more along the lines of, oh, well, they're both working in this like toxic work environment and yeah. it's like high stress job. You think they would bond over the fact that they're in similar roles and dealing with similar things and there would be like solidarity there that they can bond over. Uh, I, but Andy's not good at her job and doesn't know what she's doing. <laughs> but also, that's true of anyone at first. <laughs> that's true of anyone who but, starts out at a job. I mean, she's right. way more behind than probably most and has people. No, she doesn't even know where she is in the beginning. <laughs> Like, I don't know. I think if if a, if a new coworker of any gender approached me and was like, excuse me, what is this? It's like, I don't have time for this. Like, but, but there's no nuance in the way that's presented. And it's also always like, well, feel bad for Andy because this lady's being so mean to her. Right. And then the actual first time they, they really bonded was when they meet at that benefit dinner. And Emily's like, oh, my God, you look chic for the first time. And then... Andy says to Emily, like, well, you look skinny. And it's, Emily's like, oh, my God, thanks for saying that. That bonding yeah. scene is crazy. Yeah. It's like the <laughs> yeah. scene where Emily Blunt says a bunch of, like, really troubling stuff about her her eating disorder. And and <laughs> Andy's just like, well, you look amazing. Yeah. And there, she's like, cool, we're friends now. It's yeah. like, this is what we bonded yes. over? Mm-hmm. Not the mutual abuse you all suffer? No. Right. And, and, like, at no point did they, does Andy go, like, wait, you eat a cube of cheese a day like can we run down this yes. eating disorder all of the weight stuff in the movie yeah. where we i think the first mention of it is andy is um getting corn chowder for lunch stanley tucci's character makes fun of her and she's like what none of the girls here eat anything and he says not since two became the new four zero became the new two and then she's like well i'm a six and he's like which mm. is the new 14 
So like right. body shaming her. Um, Miranda says, she's speaking to Andy. She says, I said to myself, take a chance. Hire the smart fat girl. It seems like they're trying to go for satire here sometimes, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't and, work because Miranda's like sincere in other ways. Yeah. yeah. And, and Stanley Tucci as well. Who's con- Stanley Tucci, who he goes in on, he like starts nicknaming her six. He's calling yeah. her six in public, like, and all the, and then. There's nothing in this closet that will fit a size six, I guarantee you. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, he's like, you're getting chowder. Like, he's just like, he's furious anytime a woman eats and it is, a, it is a trigger for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, women uh, being nourished. Uh, <laughs> and then at the end, the way that all sort of wraps up is that he says something like, you bet your size six ass. And then Andy says, I'm a four now. And he's like, really? Like They had a moment. They, they bonded well, Everyone's bonding thinness. over these very sinister body standard things. Which, yeah, I feel like it must be an attempt at satire to some degree. But also it's not, it doesn't land for me. I just, no. I see this and I'm like, oh, they are idolizing small body types. That's what we're supposed to take away from the movie. Yeah, no, I think it's it thinks it's being cute and clever with that stuff, but I I don't know. For me, it totally missed. Yeah, the and mark it's as well. it's so pervasive because there are like other times where like Miranda talks about like a model that got hired, and she also makes a remark I think about the model's weight, like mm-hmm. called her frumpy or something. But that I think that was definitely one of those moments where I was just like, the fuck, you know what I mean? And like, yeah. and if I if I wasn't who I am and have had my own issues with like you know eating stuff, but like I'm recovering and healthy now or whatever, but if I, w- I think if I was younger and more impressionable, I'd be like, oh, this isn't, I wouldn't even think it was satire. Mm. I would just think this yeah. is like a normal no, thing yeah. Yeah, that like adult people talk about in their work, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which is like really fucked up. And if you're a kid seeing that movie, because I remember that Emily Blunt line so specifically because I saw this movie when I was like 13 and that was like some early proto Jamie eating disorder, like peak era. And it at the time sounded to me like a literal suggestion of something you could do versus oh they're trying to make a comment on how body centric this it's just if you're gonna bring up the issue of body shaming in the fashion industry valid huge part of the industry but like make it very clear especially if you're marketing your movie at young people that you're being critical of it and that it's unreasonable and that it shouldn't be an objective because yeah like the cube cheese line was like oh you can do that (laughs) even though emily Mm -hmm. blunt is like subtextually saying like and it's killing me and i'm almost dead but all i got was like oh cube of cheese you won't die sick like and and and, like she follows that immediately saying like oh i think she says like i'm one stomach flu away from being a zero Mm -hmm. or my 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 goal weight yeah yeah. Yeah. and she's like she's sick during that scene like she has a cold yeah so I'm thinking, like, bitch, are you are you there yet? Like, you know, like, like, is this the stomach cold that you're getting? Like, okay, go. You know, like, yeah. th- there's no, like, critique of it. There's no Andy being like, no, maybe we should, like, why don't we step aside and you have something that's not a cube of cheese? Right. There's nothing right. like that. Like, all of the things that are talked about with weight stuff is just very matter of fact. It's just part of this world. And, like, you should aspire for it. And the yeah. fact that Andy is, like, super excited to be down to a size four at the end of the movie, like, that it's just like drives that point home. And, which, and it's yeah. not the very wild thing about that is that she looks the same like yeah. you know what i mean yeah. from the beginning to the end of the movie so then like if you have like body dysmorphia you're like you're thinking that this person who's the same body size from the beginning to the end is actually has actually fluctuated it'll just like right. feed into the, any right. body dysmorphia that you might have mm-hmm. yeah oof 
it's yeah this movie mishandles that theme and and it also made me dislike stanley tucci's character who mm-hmm. i loved at the time the movie came out and i still like have a lot of love for that character but th- so much of the focus is on that and then it's like that's where they bond and we sort of touched on how his character is also very much like no you need to accept abuse in the workplace and you know just do it until you get you know you'll get praise when you're doing a good enough job which is you know not just like a hallmark of abusive work relationships but all of them mm-hmm. and and sends I think, I mean, that seemed to be a value that the movie held earnestly based on how it turns out. It's like, well, if you are working around the clock for low pay, you change your appearance entirely, then you can become successful. And the movie doesn't really challenge that in any way because that's what happens. Mm-hmm. <sighs> is he, is that character queer coded? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah he says, like, um, when he talks about, like, his background of how he was, like, a little gay boy who used to sneak issues yeah. a runway and would read mm-hmm. them under his covers right yeah. he doesn't make it clear that it's specifically him that he's talking about but you can make mm-hmm. that connection pretty easily yeah so that's yet another example that we see in a movie of a queer character who gives a makeover which is <sighs> something that we see so often and what i really didn't like about that makeover except for the fact that it mercifully took place off screen uh was <laughs> was that comes at the end of this long gaslighting except abuse in the workplace scene and then the writer has the gall to make it andy's idea to be like hey why don't you give me a makeover as like you've just failed everyone every character in this mm-hmm. scene by having it be like i mean that's the- so true i hadn't thought about that because it would be one thing if maybe uh nigel suggested it if it was like forced on her yeah. and not that anything should be forced on anyone but like the fact that they put it on the character mm-hmm. just felt weird i don't know and if you think about her makeover and the clothes that she ends up wearing it was just such a generic makeover like it had nothing of like who andy might be you know right. how like yeah. if you watch makeover show he's like oh you like to wear things like this let's get you things that like that but like better to fit you better or like a color palette that might like help you with your features better whatever right what not but to that, wear yeah but she's literally like wearing like fashion spreads yeah it's just whatever yeah. mm-hmm. free clothes are available yeah. that happen to fit her and, and and she's very comfortable in it she's walking in like four inch heels like that right stuff away. was yeah, yeah that stuff is like fun to look at but i was just like girl really like <laughs> not even not even one twisted ankle or you know <laughs> yeah. or being like oh this skirt is kind of too tight this wool doesn't feel right against my skin none none of that she's yeah. just like dives right into it and then that's why like i just feel so weird about the anti-character in this movie mm-hmm. yeah she's like so like she's telling us verbally like i don't want to do this but then all of her actions are saying like i'm doing this very <laughs> freely and happily yeah. and it's making my life better <laughs> i look so much better too. <laughs> Can we talk? I know this episode is already so long. Can we briefly talk about the Christian Thompson character and how he yeah. is a fucking horrible creep that the movie does not really acknowledge or punish him for? Yeah. Um, I'll just kind of run through a list of the things that he does. Hey, uh, when he first meets Andy, he tells her that uh, you'll never survive Miranda. So basically he's nagging her and doesn't have any confidence in her abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, he keeps calling her Miranda girl instead of calling her by her name hot call um, me so stri- by stripping her of her identity name. and individuality <laughs> call me by well also to be fair miranda does that to her for most That's, of the movie as well yeah. true but we're also you know miranda is framed as someone that we're not meant to like at least right. while she's doing that true he says 
he like sees her in this like beautiful gown and he says oh you're a vision thank god i saved your job uh and she to be fair does challenge that and says well i figured a few things out on my own too but it's a man taking credit for something he shouldn't take credit for and taking credit for a woman's work basically he's also offering her a way to get ahead in exchange for basically a sustained flirtation with him that we're led to believe will lead to sex exactly yep 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 he keeps saying like i'll introduce you to you know this editor or whatever at the new yorker right. every time a guy says that <laughs> bt dubs they're lying they, what? Every, Jamie, every, what? every time <laughs> like, well i just i just think about like my first year living here a lot and like every chode who approaches you and is like yeah no i know like blah 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 <laughs> it's never true they always know someone influential's cousin who they're on terrible terms with this, like this, this th- is awful news to me because i'm relying on that introduction for random men so. <laughs> but just like seeing it done in this particular way of like yeah i know an editor i'm like interesting what's their name like where, <laughs> right how do you know them i'm so Mm-hmm. fucking skeptical of everyone but and, and then he feels like she owes him for like the harry potter book favor yeah which is like, a, it's unclear me. how he oh has yeah. access to that but if, he whatever. has a friend who was a the friend of a friend of book a cover designer yeah. which is not how any it's of that works, how that works but whatever okay <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he's, um, he's like yeah I, I was gaslighting jk rowling a couple of years ago so <laughs> she left her she left she okay here's how i think he did it mm. I think that he was gaslighting J.K. Rowling, and then she was like, fuck you, I'm out of here. But she stayed logged into her Google Drive on his computer, and he never logged out, and so he has all of her documents. Oh, maybe. I think that he was performing the... What's the unforgivable curse that it makes it like mind controls you? Not the Cruciatus Ooh, curse. Oh I think God. that's the torture one. I forget what this curse is called, but he was this is cursing I don't know. her and, and like, yeah, basically like cursed her into giving him the manuscript. I think that if theory. someone finds seven, how many Horcruxes is it? Seven? Seven. Seven. If you find all seven Horcruxes, he gets normal colored hair. <laughs> I actually would watch the film of like people trying to figure out how he got the manuscript and then they would explore it with, via your guys' theories. <laughs> I would watch this. There is just watch a detective be like, oh, it was a bad lead. Oh my God. Super producer Sophie. Thank you so much, says the imperious curse. So he was imperious cursing her. That's why she makes the big yeah, yeah, bucks, yeah. baby. Um, and then, okay, so the, finally the worst thing he does is that he, they're in Paris, he kisses her. She keeps saying After that asinine no. exchange, Paris is pretty. He's like, yeah, it's really pretty. Do you want to kiss me? He kisses her. She says no, I think three different times. And then he keeps pushing past the no, keeps kissing her. And, and it's a very like, implied, like a no means yes. Right. Like, keep and then going. she's like, oh, well, I'm out of excuses. And he's yeah. like, thank goodness. So <sighs> then they keep kissing. And it just shows a man pushing past the no, a woman being worn down, and the whole thing being framed as romantic yeah. rather than predatory, which because is what's she does, happening. She does give consent. Uh, towards the end, what after unquote, all yeah. of this, yeah. yes, and she even says like, "I'm, I've had too much to drink." All, everything, yeah. She lays yeah. out all the reasons why this is not a good idea, and but the movie. The movie makes her consent so that us as viewers don't think he's a fucking rapist. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And we see this all the fucking time. And this is yet another example of how it. I would have loved for that scene to end is be like, because also they're in Paris. It's empty. There's no one in Paris in this movie. And so it's just like she 
I don't think the movie intends this. I think they just couldn't afford extras this day. <laughs> but like they're they're totally in the middle. Like she's drunk and alone in a strange city with no one around in the middle of the night. And so there's always that like fear and pressure on women to say yes, because what is the, like, what if he gets angry yeah. at being rejected and then you're physically harmed? Mm-hmm. The, they couldn't afford extras this day, <laughs> <laughs> but it was something that occurred to me. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it's still framed as like, wow, she finally hooked up with, with old flesh. Head. Cause then it cuts to the next morning and she's in his bed. Presumably they've had sex. Like, yeah. and the movie frames the sex as consensual. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I think, and I think they put her there so that she could discover that like he had the mock-up of the, um, the new issue of the magazine, mm-hmm. uh, when Jacqueline becomes the editor. Right. So it's like, so they put her in a situation where she probably didn't really want to have sex with him, but she did. But so that, like, there's two things that are happening. It can move a plot point ahead so that, like, she discovers this. But also to that, as viewers, maybe we feel a way about her stepping out on Nate, even though, like, they're mm. technically broken up. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, I think that even 10 years ago, I was just like, this is weird. Like, I, I wasn't even th- mad at her or anything because I could care less about her and Nate at that point. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Nate who says, why do women have so many bags? <laughs> you get one bag, you put all your stuff in it, it's done. <laughs> Oh my God, your your uh, Adrian Grenier yeah, impression. So good. Thank you so much. It's she should just you know maybe shop around for a worthy man. Yeah, or no man, or no mm-hmm. man. I mean, the the thing with with this genre is that it still kind of subscribes to the like having it allness of second wave feminism of like saying like no she can have both and and still holding that up as like in a best case scenario this is what you'd have and not presenting any sort of fulfillment as a person with anything but the completely happy career and home life which like you were saying Amy is just like it is a great ideal but then it's you know in practice you just have to be working twice as hard so even if you do have a successful career and a successful relationship family life whatever very often you find yourself like feel completely hollow as a person stretch so thin yeah and then you can't and then you're like okay i did what i was told but now i feel nothing why (laughs) why is that and and so you know we'll figure it out one of these days we'll we'll get it yeah we need oh here's what we need we need a time turner like in harry potter 3 where where um, Hermione, you know, she is going to all these different classes because she's traveling back through time so that she can have it all and do everything that she wants. So that's what we, oh. as women, oh, need. That's what women How many need. more that's what women Harry want. Potter <laughs> references would you like me to make? I mean, honestly, I'm good leaving it here. Oh, <laughs> I see. A, a Voldemort over here oh not wanting me to, you know, succeed. <laughs> That that's Voldemort's thing. He doesn't want people to succeed. <laughs> that's Bad my man. favorite description of Voldemort's objectives ever. <laughs> Voldemort, like above all, hates success. <laughs> he wants to be the only successful one. <laughs> anyway, oh Voldemort, <laughs> little slit-nosed icon. <laughs> Love mm-hmm. him. Do, does anyone have anything else that they want to talk about before we wrap up? We've talked about everything I, I had. There's so much to talk about. Oh, this gosh, movie. so much. Well, does the movie pass the Bechdel test? Yes. yes. It does. 
women talking about fashion, clothes, the magazine, etc. There are, you know, some conversations about men, whether it's Nate or Simon or whoever. The conversations that do pass a lot of the time are, and this isn't a criticism here or there, but they do tend to be about hyper-feminine topics. Which we see again and again and again. Yeah, where it's like, you know, that whole exchange about... Emily Blunt's eating disorder mm-hmm. and how it's cute mm-hmm. passes mm-hmm. the Bechdel test. And to be clear, it's there's nothing wrong, inherently wrong, with uh, talking about hyper-feminine things, but because no. we pretty much only see that in movies where women right. are talking, they're only talking about either like very domestic things or very hyper-feminine things and are rarely talking about stuff that might be considered gender neutral or, you know, they're n- no one's talking about science. <laughs> but there's a lot of talk about work. Like, yeah. get it's this true. done, get that done. How did you do this? Why aren't you doing this? And Where's yeah, that I, paper? Yes. <laughs> I really love that I really shit. like that. <laughs> Where is it? Where, we still don't Can know. Can that be the sequel? <laughs> if, oh, okay. And what was it about? <laughs> if, if only Andy used her wand to summon it with the Accio paper, she would have oh found it. Oh, dear. So, anyway... Okay, well, Jamie just walked out of the room. I'm just, I just, it's just not for me. Yeah. I understand. Uh, let's rate the movie on our nipple scale, zero to five nipples, based on its portrayal of women. This is another tricky one for me because it is largely a female-driven cast. It is a movie that at least starts to explore the professional lives of women and the sacrifices that maybe have to be made and different things like that. Female relationships are a huge part of the movie, but a lot of the time in this movie, the female relationships are not going very well. You know, we see this like archetypal successful career woman who is very difficult to be around. You know, there's the weird comments about weight all the time and body type. There's almost no diversity in terms of body type and race. It's that weird New York City where only white people live. There's just all kinds of problems with this movie. So I'm going to give it... I'm tempted to give it a two because I think it's... I was feeling it. It feels like it has its heart set in the right place for 2006. Yeah. But we've progressed a little bit as a society since then. Um, So it feels not so progressive today. But I think for the time it was, you know, attempting to do something. (laughs) So I'll give it a two. And I'll give both of my nipples to Meryl Street. Wow. (laughs) Brave, subversive. (laughs) I know. Uh, I was was thinking it too as well for this. yeah, I, I agree with you that the movie, for all of its failings and and sort of, I mean, it's weird. There's not a, uh, there's very few topics that I feel like this movie completely fails. It's just that there's a lot of gray area where it is maybe skewing on the side of gray area that I agree with less. But it is one of the few movies that you're like, oh yeah, this is definitely a product of its time that I don't think is like unwatchable. I think it's still like a really fun movie. I'll watch it again. It's trying to do a good thing. It's not quite getting there, but, you know, we'll we'll feel that way about almost any movie made Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, um, which hopefully means the world is moving forward. But, you know, we live in in active hell, so (laughs) who knows? Um, 
Yeah. My main takeaway from this viewing was the Andy character and like how inconclusive the journey is and, and, and how frustrating it is to see young women with strong opinions have those opinions neutralized over the course of a movie. Don't love it. But I'll give it I'll give it two stars and I'm giving them to Louis. Stars. So oh, fucking kill me. <laughs> I'm giving it two nipples and I'm giving the nipples, which are star shaped pasties <laughs> in this case, to Tracy Toms, who mm-hmm. God damn it. Someday I mean she was incredible in rent. Just like watch her in rent. But rent She's, is Don't poop poo say it. <laughs> rent is good okay uh amy <laughs> well what say you well i'm like saddened that you guys are only giving it a pair of nipples because i was sitting here and i'm like i think this is a solid like three and a half big nipples for me that's Ooh, fine okay. that's great <laughs> yeah and i think a lot of it's tied to nostalgia and how much i just sure love the movie and that just, happens yeah. a lot on this podcast yes. and it's just like a fun movie to watch and um I just started really thinking critically about it because I knew I was going to do this podcast, you mm-hmm. know. But even for all its troubles, I just love it. And that's fine. Uh, yeah. I just love and And I love even even though it's like trying to talk shit about fashion or like consumerism and how all of that could be like frivolous. It still glamorizes it in such a cute way that I can't. Yeah. I mean, Andy wears some questionable things that I don't even think were in fashion then, but <laughs> it's fun to see like how they thought what was fashionable then, and uh, yeah, and I think that like the glossiness of the film is something that b- making it beautiful to look at and fun to watch while also showing a woman in power who, even though we're supposed to be told is like a, a not a good person, mm-hmm. but she's still like really competent and doing her job well, mm-hmm. uh, and is portrayed by Meryl Street is such a good thing you know i think that like to have that piece of art in the world i just appreciated it mm-hmm. yeah like i definitely don't understand why there are no people of color in it why there aren't more queer people in it in the world of fashion yeah that's <laughs> yeah um I, I just i don't understand why you know there are like lots of more real worldy stuff that isn't like being insinuated in the world with the devil wars product but mm-hmm. you know it's it's a film whatever but i think that like storytelling could have been done just you know been more effective and there are like really fucked up portrayals of things that are happening, especially with a Simon Baker character. Mm-hmm. But I just overlook all that shit because I like the movie. I lo- Hello, I'm a person who watches the montages for fun. <laughs> like, I, I love the foley in the montages. Like, I love the foley of the of the purses and the coats, you know, the getting slapping sla- noises yes. of them hitting the desk. Yeah, yeah that's good. I, 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 like, I, like, track the montage of her uh, makeover where she goes through all the different outfits. I like to, I'm like, this is filmed in the day. Let's look at all the inconsistencies of how it was, like, how we can track that it was filmed. I, like, I love... <laughs> I love what I, lo- I think it's because I love watching like the visuals of this movie. Yeah. So you're allowed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, there's no there's no wrong answers. Yeah. There's truly not. I don't, also- I don't feel like I'm being defensive. I'm just no. telling you why I love it. Yeah. So much. Yeah. <laughs> no. Of course. We're also extremely jaded and have yes. recorded but so then, many I mean, I also gave Raiders of the Lost Ark zero nipples, and I still deeply love that movie. So, you know, it's it's a journey that we're all on. <sighs> so I give one of my nipples to the Foley artist. If you're listening, hit me up. I'm on the cast. They're, they're our biggest fan. <laughs> uh, and definitely a nipple to Miss Merrill, a nipple to Lily, who was, like you're saying, criminally underused. 
because her joy at receiving that hideous Marc Jacobs bag was like, <laughs> I was like, man, that bag is ugly, but you love it, so I love it. Yeah. yeah. An Oscar-worthy performance, <laughs> honestly. The bag was trash. And then I have a nipple to, I have a nipple to the scene that I want to shout out my to my friend Lara. She pointed out to me. There's this scene where she comes in, uh, Andy comes into her apartment, and she, I think she just got out of the shower, and she's wearing like a bra and a tank top, and then she puts another tank top over it. So, and then oh, she yeah. puts her and a then she puts a hoodie over it. Yes. So shout out to all that layering of tank tops <laughs> for no reason. <laughs> I didn't notice the tank top on a tank top. What could that possibly yeah, hope to? Accomplish? I don't know either. So anybody knows behind the scenes info on that. Uh, so she, the, so that half a nipple goes out to my friend Lara who pointed that out to me. <laughs> Hell yeah. Very good. Well, Amy, thank you so thank much you for being for here. Coming. Thank you for so having fun. me. This thank is for super fun. talking to us for hours. <laughs> Um, what would you like to plug? Where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me online on the Twitter. My account is Amy Adoisy. It's spelled A-M-Y-A-D-O-Y-Z-I-E. It's like a gibberish name I made up when I was a punk kid. Uh, <laughs> I also have a website that has like literary event things that I do every now and then. Uh, cool. It's called uh, byamylam.com, like a byline, uh, no spaces, because I write fiction. Um, right now I'm in school and I'm working on a novel about like a queer frontier pioneer story. Oh, very cool. Yes. That's and I'm writing it as a novel, but one day I want to see it like made into a thing I can watch. Well, I'm a screenwriter, yeah. so like I could like adopt it. <laughs> we'll be talking yes. about it on the back talk. Yes, <laughs> it better get hella nipples. If hell you yeah! Do. Yes. <laughs> I better get I be the guest, or would that not be cool? <laughs> I'm already like projecting this. No, the world. You'll be the guest. Happen. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, you can follow the Bechtelcast on social media across all the platforms at Bechtelcast. You, you can go to our, you can join our Patreon, aka our Matreon, mm-hmm. which is $5 a month and it gets you two bonus episodes every single month, plus mm-hmm. our whole backlog of episodes. You get access to that. You can check out our Tee Public store where there's always a lot of fun designs. Mm-hmm. And you can go to teepublic.com slash the Bechtelcast. Yep. There's all sorts of shit you can do yeah. on the internet. Rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, does anyone and... ever? Sometimes people do that. Yeah, did you know it, that? It helps us out. It, like, it's wild because I've our... not. Every time the podcast is like, do it. I'm like, no, I'm not gonna do that. But no. you should. But you should, and be better. Yes. I hope you guys get some like thick beta boys reviewing your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. if they also have flesh-colored hair, they will not like us. It's complicated. <laughs> it's really complicated. <laughs> But anyway, uh, thanks again for for being here. What a time we've had. And uh, just a reminder that the devil does wear Prada. To to quote the movie, (laughs) it does. All right, bye. Bye. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.